Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks Right to Recovery. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. So we're here with my co-host today, again, the wonderful Andrea Parker. Yes, Jim Staros. So Ms. Parker, this is the last week of school. So you must be all excited. You know what? It is bittersweet. I just um, saw my eighth graders graduate. We had a virtual ceremony. It was so beautiful. I did this poem for them. I really got some bars. So I probably have to share that with you later. But it was bittersweet. I missed them. I was was crying. Even though it was virtual, I was in tears. So I will miss it. I'm not necessarily, I'm excited of, of summer, but I still always miss my students. And I know that it's always just a new beginning. So it's always bittersweet. Who would have thought that this 2019, 2020 school year would bring all the, these things and all these events? I know this is kind of crazy. There's like so many different things happening at once. We've got a pandemic, right? We've got a depression. Yes, unfortunately. We've got all kinds of protests in the streets due to police killings. Yes. I thought that the strike would be the highlight of the school year, but once that was over, something else always came. So I'm hoping that what's happening now is, <laughs> as we get over this hump, that we'll have a, some calm. I know, right? I mean, I you would think if we're starting off with an 11-day strike, right. that that would be the biggest issue of the year. And who'd have thought that's probably not even in the top three? Wasn't even close. I know, right? That's crazy. But what I am enjoying about this time is that we are fighting for some good causes, some good things. We're talking about, you know, a right to recovery, which our Vice President Stacey Davis Gates will discuss later um, about how people need to be able to process what's this pandemic and be able to recover and not feel like they are so far behind in debt and in health that they cannot recover. Exactly. Now we're talking about in the light of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd just fighting about this systemic racism in our country, especially right now in the police department and how we got to change that. Yeah, it's just it's crazy how many different ways people are fighting for their lives, literally. Yeah. You know, we've got the pandemic trying to kill everybody. And then we've got targeted issues within certain communities that have been going on for centuries. Yes. That are still there, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you'd think we would have solved this issue by now, but it's not. It's still there. It's still prevalent, and it still affects the communities we live in. That's true. So, what I've learned from these all these issues that we are facing is we can never get too comfortable. We always got to stay ahead of the game. Right. We got to keep fighting. We can't give up. We cannot give up because of small concessions that the rich may give us. We have to go hard and demand what we want and not give up till we get that. And right now, one thing that we're wanting in the light of the George Floyd issue that we want to defund CPD at a CPS. It's $33 million in the public schools that we could do a lot with. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane how much money that really is. And what that would be able to fund if we took the police out of the public schools. They're not trained to deal with kids. No. And not only that, there are schools that have police officers every day, but they don't have a counselor or a nurse every day. Something is wrong with the priority there. We had them at, at King High School. Uh, we, only, we only had, we had less than 500 kids. Right. And we had a police officer every day, mm-hmm. sometimes two, depending on the time of day. Right. 
And and this is something like that money would more than fund a psychologist and a social worker in every high school in the city. And probably more than one. And I think if you had that, then you would have less need for a police officer who exercises force when it, in most cases, is not necessary. I know that when I went to high school, and of course, when you went to high school, there was no police officer there. And I am not thinking that our children have evolved to to the point where we need police officers every day at school. Our children are not animals or monsters or criminals. And when you see a police officer in school, what is that saying to people who want to move in your in that community? Oh, I don't want to send my child to that school they, if it needs a police officer every day. So what message are we sending? Again, we have more police officers in some schools than you have counselors, psychologists, and nurses. Let's let's change the narrative and let's really put our students first. I mean, that just shows how, as a society, we've been treating certain communities that they need to be policed. They don't need to be taken care of. They need to be policed for everybody else's safety. That's an insane way to look at it. I know when I was going to school in the suburbs, Mm -hmm. you know who they're policing my school? They had everybody's moms. Right. Literally. (laughs) They, had, they, they, there was moms in the hallways and you didn't know whose mom it was. You knew it was a mom. Right. But you knew they, they were going to come beat your ass and tell your mom to beat your ass when you got home. Can we say ass on the show? I don't, can I say that? I don't know. Well, we'll see. Anyway, we'll we'll see if it gets edited out. We'll let our wonderful producer edit it out. Yes, but you might hear it. As we always say, it takes a village to raise a child and parents and teachers and counselors and nurses, they're part of their village. Our children are not criminals. They're learning. Yes, they have moments of anxiety, but that can be fixed if we had more of a restorative justice um, counselor. Um, We had more community engagement. We had more people to talk about maybe values and how to manage your anger. We don't need to show a force to our students where they walk in fear. There has been studies that show that where there's more police presence, children do not do well. There's a less of a graduation rate when you have this more show of force. So we got to be just very careful about that. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, the idea that it takes the village to raise a child, we're more worrying about incarcerating the child than raising him. Mm. And that's not a way for society to be successful at all. And, you know, I'm glad they've got a lot of these big national movements that we're being a part of here in Chicago as well. And um, I know coming up in about a week or so, we've got on June 24th, a national movement uh, for Black Lives Matter. Okay. Um, called Education Equity or Else. Yes, that's right. right? Th- th- this is a big thing. And it's very important that we see it as part of this, what we're doing here in Chicago as part of a larger community. Yes. And it's needed everywhere. It is. And we have a right to recover from the residue of this pandemic and definitely systemic racism. Yes, we do. We are joined today with Chicago Teachers Union Vice President Stacy Davis Gates, and she is here to talk with us and educate our listeners on right to recovery, which is so needed. So, thank you, Stacy, for being here. Can we just talk about first what does right to recovery mean, and why should we care about it? Well, um, you know, to your point, we started this, you know, school year in a battle to bring some equity and justice to our school communities here in Chicago. And um, that required an 11 day strike. You know, we were able to win some tangible things, some smaller class sizes, um, staffing for social workers, you know, counselors, clinicians. Um, Those are real discernible wins among 
among other things, of course. Um, that being said, our movement, you know, has been very clear about the needs of our communities and the needs of our um, students who reside in our communities. You know, COVID hitting the Black community particularly hard, as well as the Latinx community, continues to clarify the voice and the organizing work that we've been doing for the last decade, that there is an obvious disconnect in the resources, the application of resources in the neighborhoods, communities where Black people reside, where Brown people reside, where immigrants reside. Um, that has been a significant challenge for our members who educate students in the Chicago public schools. So when COVID happened, we knew that the communities that were already receiving the least would still be in the back of the line um, with respect to recovery. We know that we're dealing with tens of millions of people out of work, not counting the immigrant community because they can't apply for federal um, help. We know that COVID has exacerbated the disparities in healthcare, that folks who need to work um, the most, you know, have lost the most. We know that the inability of our city to offer free broadband and devices to our students has also exacerbated, you know, our students' abilities to um, engage in our school work, you know, during this crisis. And then on top of that, um, police murder, the focus be is back on police murder and that Black people are still being murdered on camera and it's being shared. Um, only now, though, we have widespread unrest in um, cities across this world and, and that they are calling for racial justice. They are calling for um, defunding of the police calling for, you know, Chicago police to be out of our schools, but police to be out of our schools nationally. Um, Minneapolis, Denver, Seattle, you know, three places where police will no longer be in their school districts. Um, and, and in place, they are going to get the type of restorative justice um, training and practices and practitioners that we were fighting for in our contract. So. You have the death of people, the fear of a disease, the impact being felt in black communities and brown communities primarily, um, exacerbated in this moment by the continued murder of black bodies. And so, um, to say that this has been, um, a traumatic space and time is an understatement. And so the question about how we recover has everything to do with how do we generate revenue and prioritize communities that have been left behind for generations? That's one. I think recovery also says, 
how do the voices that are being lifted and organized and led in this moment, how do they dictate the needs for their community specifically? Not just fight for it, demonstrate for it, put your life on the line for it. Because remember, people are organizing, protesting, demonstrating in the time of COVID. Those people get to tell us, right? The leaders get to tell us how recovery needs to look as well. So taking a look at this, so why why is CTU particularly concerned about this? Why aren't we just focusing on teaching, learning, students, schools, and, you know, stay in what in our lane and what we know and what we do. Why is this an issue for us? Well, you know, this morning I had a conversation with one of our delegates and she was explaining to me that she on on their like school meeting, the educators were sharing stories about families who have lost parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles and that her school community has been hit particularly hard and how the social and emotional needs of her students are not being met in this moment and that they're in mourning, but that the requirement is for them to show up and be present and to participate and to be productive at the same time that there's this widespread loss of life. Um, At the same time, the world is demonstrating for racial justice and safety. So our educators are dealing with people. And if you're teaching in the Chicago public schools, you're dealing with people who are Black. You're dealing with people who are Latinx. You're dealing with people who come from immigrant families. And if we cannot center the humanity of the impacts that they're experiencing, then I don't understand how you can even talk to them, much less offer them a lesson. So why are we involved? How do you write a lesson plan? How do you prepare a student to participate in a class if you don't understand the need for their hearts to be cared for in this moment. And then that transcends just the heart. How do people get access to food if family members are unemployed? How do you get access to shelter if you're, if you can't pay your rent and you're being evicted? So our advocacy for students to get a good education is compromised by the lack of a social safety net that helps students have shelter, that helps their families operate in a massive time of upheaval. No, that's totally true. I mean, I think a lot of times people forget we're not teaching in a vacuum. These are people, these are members of our communities, these are members in our city, and what affects them affects us. And we're just part of this larger community, and it's not just us being in a classroom in isolation. We are part of a larger community, which right now is suffering and needs it needs our support. And that is the that is the genesis of recovery because we knew that once schools were shut down, 
once the economy effectively shut down, that our students were going to be in a situation where they needed more because they already needed more. And government in moments like this, it's supposed to get bigger. It is supposed to grow to meet the needs of people. Government should not be a conduit for corporations to um, get more and become stronger. Government should be um, in the space of helping the very people that it needs in order to make society work. And so right to recovery means that the CARES Act money that comes to the school district, that comes to the city of Chicago, that it is directed for relief for renters, that it is directed for relief for homeowners, that it is directed for relief for those who are unemployed or those who don't have health care. Um, we have to be able to meet folks' basic needs. Like we haven't seen unemployment numbers like this since the Great Depression. And so we're having both the Great Depression happening at the same time 19, the events of 1968 happened, right? And we've never seen a moment like this in the history of our country, although some other history teachers might argue me on that, and I'm willing to debate that. And this is a, this is a particular space of time where you have to have the momentum on the streets. And I think you have that. Like you see black organizers, you see black youth in a position of like saying my life matters and that government has to protect me and not harm me. And they're, and they're making that clear. You have in this moment also this exacerbation of who has and who doesn't because our economy fails to work for those who need it the most. And so right to recovery, it really is a statement of humanity. We need shelter. We need employment. We need immediate relief from eviction. It it is a statement of securing people and their humanity. I I, I see that, Stacey. So I saw... um... I know that it's a right to, you know, water and power, a right to health care, a right to public education, income security, family and community, a right to liberty. And you said all that can be funded through the CARES Act. Can you explain to those who may not know what the CARES Act is? Well, this is an attempt by the federal government. And I want to say it's marginal. It, it's not as expansive as it needs to be. Um, I think we're clear that even when hospitals receive stimulus money from the government, because that's effectively what the CARES Act is. It is stimulus money that was sent to states to um, to provide relief to cities and school districts um, that were feeling the impact of COVID. And what it is supposed to do is, you know, feed people, have people sheltered. But what it has done in actuality is, you know, subsidize um, capitalism and that a lot of our large corporations have received um, a lot of resources to keep it going. And meanwhile, we're seeing an uptick of, you know, activity in the courts with respect to evictions. Um, we're seeing an uptick in activity with respect to landlords, basically making it hard for um, those who can't pay because they're unemployed to be there. Um, it also provides for um, unemployment. 
you know, uh, insurance for those who have lost their jobs, um, those in the gig economy. The the gaping hole in this, especially with those who are, you know, connected to the Chicago public schools is that our immigrant communities have been left out. And so you have the immigrant community, undocumented workers who are unemployed and also ineligible for CARES Act assistance or unemployment assistance. So in communities where our members, you know, educate, it is, you know, compounded. And so this whole concept that we can just focus on, we can close our virtual um, classroom door and just focus on ABCs and one, two, threes is naive at best, um, dangerous at worst, because um, these are people and there are needs, basic human needs that are not being met in this moment. And so, you know, look, no one took a job that I've talked to in the Chicago public schools to harm anyone. The whole point was to come into the Chicago public schools and be a part of a community that wanted to offer both an education and some hope. And so we have to be reminded of what our original objectives were and to revisit them in a way that gives us power, collective power, to struggle for and to get shelter, you know, employment, mutual aid, things that make it work for the very people we want to educate. Many times on this show, we've talked about CTU being part of both this movement and a moment in history. How is the current moment shaping us as a union? Um, the overwhelming majority of people that I've spoken to um, have said a couple of things. I want to know more about how to not just help, but empower. And, you know, there's a desire to fill in the gaps because that's what most of us do anyway when we're in our school communities is figure out how to fill in the gaps. So that continues to be the question. It becomes harder though because we are not in the same physical building and you have a specter of a, like of a disease that could literally kill you. And so it gives people a lot of pause. So our members in the discussions that I've had and what I've been reading from them in emails and text messages, we want to continue to be of service. It is daunting to understand how to be of specific service and we're all learning how to organize and to demonstrate in different ways while also trying to take care of our personal health and our family's personal health. So there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of question marks, but there's also a lot of resolve from our members at the same time to like continue to coalesce around these issues of justice and equity. We had a car caravan um, last Saturday for Black Lives because they matter. Listen, you know, if Black students are not a part of the Chicago public schools, you don't have a Chicago public schools. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. And so, you know, you have a good amount of our members who understand that and are willing to stand in the gap, raise their voices, support and amplify 
you know, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, with this whole situation that we're in right now, just the whole world, the country seeing who's really essential in the economy, who's essential in our communities. These were the people that before were considered disposable. And these are the people that now we were realizing we can't live without. It's always been that way. But I think people are finally maybe starting to wake up to the fact that these are the people that need protection and need to be lifted up. Right. And without those people, it'd be hard to have a society. Exactly. So, so Stacey, I'm actually, we're going to ask you one last question. So what can we do as a union and what can our listeners do to help ensure that the right to recovery becomes a reality? So here's the thing. We have a good track record of lifting up the very issues and fighting for them that are absolutely necessary in this moment, progressive revenue. Like there is no way we get out of this period of time without rich people having to pay more. That's number one. Like they have to be in a position to pay their fair share. And in Chicago, in the state of Illinois, that has not been the practice. So we have to solidify that. So number one, we're probably going to need a, a fair tax. Um, that's going to be on the ballot in November. Our members are going to have to vote affirmatively for a fair tax. That's, that is a primary, a primary activity. Two, we're going to have to push for a corporate head tax here in Chicago. This is some, this is not a new discussion either. Um, corporations like the Citadel, um, Ken Griffin, we all know him. Um, they have been making money hand over fist during, you know, this economic downturn for the majority of us. Um, you also have places like Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is on track to become a trillionaire at a time where widespread massive unemployment is at its peak in the, it, it, globally, right? We're going to have to figure out what does taxing these types of places mean and how can those resources help to rebuild communities that have been divested from for generations? So that that's that's one. Revenue is huge. We're going to have to be in a position where TIF money that has been going to places like Lincoln Yards, playground for rich people, that has to be diverted. We have an emergent situation where TIF, a tool that was created by Harold Washington to resource communities on the south and west side, we need that back. And we need a capital plan for the south side and the west side. The damage done during this recent uprising only makes worse what was already bad. And so we're going to need TIF money redirected. The city and the state of Illinois will have to understand that you need a capital plan just for places where Black folks are residing in this moment because of the massive um, neglect that has been experienced. You have spaces on the west side of Chicago that have never recovered from 1968. Like that's over 50 years ago. So that is going to require a capital plan. We're going to have to look at how the Green New Deal is not just this amorphous idea that sounds good as a rhetorical talking point, 
but it becomes the infrastructure to how we marshal in a better society and spaces where brown people live and in spaces where black people live. This is what is necessary. We're also in a moment now with respect to public education where all of the things that um, ed reformers put forth as a panacea for black children, for brown children, for low income children has all come falling down, right? Testing for the sake of testing. We don't need that anymore. We did need it. Testing is a diagnostic tool for teachers. It is not a tool to penalize students and school communities and families. It is not a tool to punish teachers and fire them. It is a diagnostic tool. And this moment is showing us, one, the innovation and the resilience of our educators, the the ability of our educators to do the impossible in a very short period of time. But it also exposes the support that we need from our government. Broadband has to become a public utility. They've done it in Chattanooga and Portland. And there is infrastructure here in Chicago to finish that. And we need that like yesterday, right? It's not enough to get a hotspot. We need an infrastructure that reaches every corner of the city for broadband. And so what we're talking about is rebuilding the spaces in the city where the vast majority of our members um, work and live because we live in the city as well. So there's a $700 million budget hole being projected for the city of Chicago. And the only way that our mayor and the city council may see their way out of it is taxing the very people who are doing the most right now. And And those are our members. That $700 million budget hole traditionally has been a way for elected officials, mayors, and aldermen to levy a tax on working families, middle-class families in the city. It has also been a tool um, to impose austerity on the very people that are paying for government, layoffs, you know, pay cuts. And so what our members in this moment have to be resolved, like we have to have the strongest resolve is that we need progressive revenue and that we get to say no to further austerity, that there is an opportunity for us to um, push forth this idea that rich people get to pay more, that we have already paid our fair share and that austerity is not just racist, it's sexist, and, and, and it is really has been a crime against humanity if we are looking at the impact of poverty. So what I would say is that we're going to have to be stronger than ever, more united than ever, because conversations about layoffs, um, conversations about service disruptions as citizens of Chicago we have to reject those. We also have to be in a position to organize across sectors. What we will experience as educators will not be different from what folks in nursing who work in nursing homes and hospitals experience, what folks that work in uh, the, the fast food industry and the restaurant industry experience. We are going to have to be adept at broadening 
our um, allies, about being in coalition with the organizers of Black Lives Matter, to the organizers of um, the Fight for 15, to the unions that represent nursing home and child care workers, that this is a fight that cannot be confined to the Chicago Teachers Union alone, that it is a broad, multi-sector um, fight for our lives. Well, that is quite inspiring. And I want to thank you so much, Stacy, for being on the show today. Um, it's always such a pleasure to have you on and hear your passion and your uh, desire to actually make this a better city for everyone living in it. Absolutely. Our vice president just gave you the rundown on what right to recovery is, why we need it, and how we're going to get there and make it a reality. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks on the Right to Recovery with our wonderful Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates and the equally wonderful Andrea Parker. Yes, and of course, with my awesome co-host Jim Starros. I know this was a heavy episode, but it was very educational because we all need to understand our right to recovery and all of us as Americans have a right to recovery and you need to know what that is. And if you need to know more about right to recovery and what CTU is asking in terms of right to recovery, please go to our CTU Local One page or um, www.ctulocal1.org and it's a link for right to recovery and you can look at all the things that we desire as a union to help those um, who are in need. That's right. And if you want to contact us here at CTU Speaks, you can get us at 312-467-8888. And leave a message there for us in our voicemail box. It's getting kind of lonely in there, so we need somebody to say something. That is true. And if you just do not feel like calling because you're just too technologically savvy or evolved and you want to use email, <laughs> please email us at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org. Any other announcements, Jim? One other last announcement. I think I mentioned it earlier in the show, but there is the National Black Lives Matter Day of Action on June 24th. This is about education equity or else. It's going to talk all about this. And one of the many things that are part of our right to recovery is the need for a quality education for everybody in every neighborhood. So don't forget to participate in that. And also, I don't think we mentioned it yet, but sign up on your favorite podcast platform for your favorite show about CTU, CTU Speaks. Yes. Tell everybody that you know. We want to be a household name. And again, we are CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. Take care.